0: Show of hands, how many of you have seen and remember the movie Field of Dreams? All right, that's going to be really helpful. I appreciate that. I realized when I was preparing this, Field of Dreams is one of my favorite movies. I mean, I I tend, as some of you know, I tend to look at things through through scriptural eyes anyway. But there's something about Field of Dreams which has a, a spiritual element to me. Somebody hearing a voice and responding to that voice with just blind faith that the voice is leading them in a good direction. You know, in a lot of ways, that's our walk as Christians. You know, you remember Jesus when he talked to Thomas, he said, you know, Thomas, when he finally saw the wounds in his hands and his side... He said, my Lord and my God, and Jesus said, you believe because you've seen. Blessed are those that will not see, have not seen, and still believe. That's the church of today. So I love that movie for that reason, and there's so many dynamics in it. For those of you, what I realized when I started researching this was that that movie was made in 1989. That movie is 30 years old. There's a generation that has no idea what Field of Dreams is. So real quickly, I'm just going to give you a, for those of you that don't know what Field of Dreams is. So it's a movie set in Iowa. I actually have had the opportunity on more than one occasion to visit the movie site. It's still there. They're actually building a stadium there right now, and they're going to play a baseball game, a major league baseball game for the first time in the state of Iowa next spring. Dyersville, Iowa. And the the story of the movie uh, Ray Kinsella and his wife uh, they were children of the 60s and 70s were real involved in the you know the Vietnam uh, anti-war movement uh, went to Berkeley just kind of radical rabble rousers got married finally settled down and decided they wanted to have a little simpler lifestyle so they buy a farm in Iowa and they become farmers. And one day Ray Kinsella's out walking in his field. He's checking his corn out, and he hears this voice. And it says, If you build it, he will come. And it kind of freaks him out, as it probably would any one of us. But he thinks maybe it's just the wind through the, the corn stalks. So he keeps walking, and he hears, If you build it, he will come. That got his attention. Finally, he shouts out to the voice, and he says, If I build what, who will come? And then there's nothing after that. So he goes and he tells his wife. What I love about his wife is she knows he's crazy, you know. (laughs) And that's what I appreciate about my wife too because she knows that I'm crazy. So he comes and he said, I heard a voice. He said, oh yeah, whose voice? I'm not sure. What did it tell you? It says, if if you build it, he will come. She said, if you build what, who will come? And he says, I don't know. And she said, I hate it when that happens. (laughs) Over a few episodes of... Encountering the voice, he realizes what he thinks he's supposed to do is plow under his cornfield and build a baseball field, a baseball diamond. And when he shares that with his wife, she is absolutely certain that he's insane, but she also recognizes that he is so passionate about it and so believing in it that she says, if that's what you need to do, do it. So he gets his little daughter, puts her up on the John Deere tractor, and starts plowing under all of his corn. Well, his neighbors, if you think his wife thought he was crazy, what do you think his neighbors think when they look? They line up out on the street as he destroys his crop, his livelihood, and then starts building a baseball diamond. And he builds a sweet diamond, complete with lights, bleachers, oh, man. I had a chance to play baseball with my two sons on that field. Oh, man, it was so cool. And then nothing happens. Don't you hate it when that happens? You know you heard his voice. You absolutely know you heard his voice. You did what you thought you were supposed to do, and then nothing happens. And all those people that thought you were crazy, they just got validated. And one winter's night... He's actually, I take that back. It wasn't a winter's night. That was another conversation, another scene. But one night, he and his wife are having a discussion now over their finances because they plowed their crop under and now they're in pretty serious straits because their mortgage is due and they don't have money to pay it. And in the middle of this argument, his daughter comes up and goes, Daddy, not right now, honey, not right now. Daddy, not right now, honey. Daddy, there's a man on your baseball field. He looks out, and on his baseball field is Shoeless Joe Jackson, a player from the Chicago White Sox, who was banned from baseball in 1909 for apparently being one of several players that threw a World Series. Shoeless Joe Jackson was Ray Kinsella's dad's favorite player, his hero of all time. And Shoeless Joe is on this field, so he goes out, gets to play baseball with Shoeless Joe. Shoeless Joe asks a question. He says, um, is this heaven? And Ray says, uh, no, it's Iowa. And, he's, and he said, I could have sworn it was heaven. What happens that night is that after he plays a little baseball with Ray, he walks out to the cornfield, what's still left out there, and as he walks through the corn, he just disappears. So the next day, He comes back and he brings some friends. He said, you know, Ray, there were eight of us that got banned. And he said, that was the worst thing that ever happened to me. He said, I would have played for food money just to be able to play this game. He said, it was like cutting my hand off when they banished me from baseball. He said, can I bring my friends? He said, sure. So he brings the other Chicago White Sox players and they start playing baseball every day. And they get a little tired of that, and they say, you know, we don't even have to play a full game here. Can we bring some? So anyway, they end up bringing all the greats of the 1920s, and they play baseball on Ray's Field. Pretty incredible. So we go through, there's another character that's introduced, a writer named Terrence Mann, who was a writer really um, kind of fueling the protests in the 60s, and um, through a, a dream, Ray knows that he needs to go and he needs to meet this Terrence Mann. Doesn't know why, but he knows he needs to. So he goes, Terence Mann ends up coming back to him to the field, sees these players, unbelievable. And, and the scene that I want to focus on, that's a long way around the mountain, but the scene I want to focus on is one night after they get done playing, uh, Shoeless Joe invites Terence Mann out to the cornfield with him. And Terence Mann's like, he's a writer. And, and Shulas Joe wants them to write about this experience. And um, so they start going out, and Ray Kinsella goes, wait a minute, I want to go too. And Shulas Joe says, you can't. And He says, why can't I? He said, you weren't invited. Well, Ray gets pretty upset. And he says, you know what? From the very first moment that I heard the voice, I've done exactly what I was supposed to do. I heard the voice that said, build it, he will come. I build it, he came. I've done everything that I was supposed to do. Why can't I go out there? He said, well, you're not invited. He said, I've done everything and never once, never once have I ever said what's in it for me. And he said, well, what are you saying, Ray? He said, what's in it for me? That's my question for us this morning. You know, the past four weeks, Pastor Matt has been focusing on the church and the mission of the church and encouraging each of us to engage in that journey on a mission, taking whatever that individual gift that we have, whatever that voice that we've heard, taking it and engaging it in the work of the church. And, you know, for... For many of you, you heard that voice a long time ago and that decision was made to do everything that you felt like you were supposed to do. You know, I know that there are some in this room today that maybe think they've heard a voice but aren't quite certain. Or maybe they know they heard a voice but haven't quite been able to take those steps, make those moves yet. And I think that if we... um, Regardless of where we're at in in the uh, journey, I think at some point we all ask that question, what's in it for me? It's human nature, isn't it? You know, following Christ is not an easy thing. Um, You know, Jesus said, if they hate you, they hated me first. Don't be surprised at the trials that you're encountering because the world hated me before it hated you. So, it's not a decision to be taken lightly, and I think all of us at some point in time either have voiced or felt that, you know, God, what's in it for me? I've done everything, and I don't really quite understand. And I'm going to try to answer that question to an extent this morning. And I think really the simple answer to, you know, what's in it for me really depends on how we go about responding. To that voice. Now, I'm going to make a couple of assumptions. I'm going to assume that you've either decided to follow God's plan and purpose or that you have had the tug on your heart and it's something that you've considered, something that you're in the midst of working through. You know, if you've already rejected God's plan, then this isn't going to have any, any value uh, to you. If you've rejected God's plan of salvation and you refuse to listen to the urges of His Spirit, then what's in it for you, according to Scripture, includes weeping and gnashing of teeth. And that doesn't sound good, but that's the reality, the truth of, of Scripture. For those that are on the journey seeking, or seeking God's will for their life right now, this is for you. So I want to share a, a personal Earlier this year, I started considering taking on what would be a monumental task, something that would take months of preparation, something that would push me physically and mentally beyond anything that I had ever taken on in my life. And honestly, uh, the chance of uh, succeeding um, would require an absolute all-in commitment, and I really wasn't certain that I wanted to go there. And so one morning, I just cried out to God, and I said, Lord, do I really want to do this? And on the surface, that sounds like a good thing, right? I'm including God in the decision. I want His endorsement. I want His affirmation that it's what I'm supposed to be doing. But you know, the very first thing that I heard the Spirit say was, it's the wrong question, Russ. And I said, well, how is that the wrong question, God? And he said, well, first off, if it was something you didn't want to do, you wouldn't even ask me, right? Well, yeah, how often do we go to God and go, God, I don't really want to do this, what do you think? So he said, just the fact that you came and said, do I want to do this, Lord, the simple answer to that is, well, yes, Rush, you probably want to do it because you wouldn't have asked me if you didn't want to do it but it's still the wrong question. The right question is, Lord, do we want to do this? Do we want to do this? You know, and as soon as I felt that in my spirit, I was immediately humbled because the spirit was right. Imagine that. <laughs> but right on the heels of that, two verses came to mind. John 15:5 says I'm the vine, you are the branches. What? Apart from me, you can do nothing, right? Apart from me, you can do nothing. And then immediately, Philippians 4.13, I can do all things through who? Through Christ who strengthens me. And I realized that the question for each one of us has to be, Lord, What do we do? What do we do? You know, I think one of the common misconceptions about being a true follower of Christ is that it's God forcing us to do something we don't want to do, and we grit our teeth and we get through it because in the end there's going to be some kind of reward, and I think that's a terrible misconception of what God calls us to do. The Scripture says that we are fearfully and wonderfully made, that God knit us together in our mother's womb, that no two of us are identical. It was not cookie-cutter stamp out the church. It was make unique, incredibly intricate, gifted creatures that when you weave them together and they come together together. They do amazing things, and each one is a single part. You know, in in 1 Corinthians 12, it talks about the parts of the body. And one of my favorite passages says that the least seemly member of the body should be the one that's bestowed the most abundant honor. Because you know what? You take one piece out, and something's missing, and guess what? You've got a bunch of deacons standing in the back of the church, waiting for a cue to come forward with the offering place because the one piece that's missing didn't give them a cue. Everything is, everyone's necessary, each one of us. So the answer to what's in it for me, I think, ultimately boils down to which camp we fall in. And I I tend to be pretty simplistic, um, and and I like three examples because I usually can't remember more than the first two anyway, so… So I've got three. So we already talked about camp number one. Those who reject God's involvement in their life, we've already talked about that. And, and can I just say, if there's someone sitting here today that has rejected that, and for some reason you're here today, don't leave today without dealing with that. Scripture says that God loved us so much, He sent His only Son. He sent the very best that He had to earth to live a perfect life, to pay a debt that I owed. And Jesus sacrificed Himself willingly. And because of that, all I have to do is receive the gift that He offers, which is a gift of eternal life. He says, I paid your price, and I want you with me. If you're here and you've rejected that at some point in time, maybe you feel like I've done something that I can't be forgiven. There's no way in the world God could forgive me. You don't know what I've done. Whatever. There anything you've done that hadn't been done before, and God's forgiven every single thing. So we've got camp number two. That's the Frank Sinatra group. I did it my way. Right? I love that song, but I can tell you there isn't anything in Scripture that lines up very well with it. I did it my way. You know... This is kind of sobering, and and I, but it's Matthew 7, 21, 22. This is the uh, separation of the sheep and the goats. Listen to this. Jesus says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, and in your name cast out demons, and in your name perform any miracles? And I will declare to them, depart from me. I knew you're not. You know, sadly, the I did it my way, I'm not saying that it's a, an absolute you know, stamp of condemnation, but it certainly does not end up in a, in a good place. So assuming that all of us are not getting neon sign messages from God, is there scripture that helps guide us in what he really wants from us? And the Jeopardy answer is, does Scripture give us any guidelines at all? I was hoping that somebody would say, what is yes? But that was also assuming that people are my age too, so. The Jeopardy answer is, what is yes? Matthew 5, Sermon on the Mount. I know Pastor Matt looked at this in the very first week, but I want to look at just one section of this and wind down here. Jesus' words, you are. Not you might be, not if you do this you could be, you are the light of the world. Let your light, let your light shine before men in such a way that they see your good works and glorify your Father who's in heaven. Your light, not my light, not Pastor Matt's light, not Dave's light, not Brian's light, let your light so shine before men that they see the things that you're doing and they don't put you up on a pedestal. They see the good works that you are doing and they give glory to your Father in heaven. Your light is a unique gift that God created especially for you. And we combine your light with your light with your light with yours with yours, with yours, when we put them together. What an incredible light. So what's the ultimate purpose of our light? You know, what did the Scripture say? People should see our good works. They can't see good works if we're not actively doing them, right? So on a mission, what is it that is inside you that you do well? What is it that's inside you that when you do it, there's a sense of fulfillment that's unlike anything else? What is that within you? Actively use that. Actively use that. Whatever it is. And what should the outcome be? It should be to glorify our Father. So what glorifies God? You know, the passage that Kevin read a little while ago, John 15, 8. My Father is glorified by this, that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. That you bear much fruit. That should be the ultimate goal. That's what glorifies God. And that's the intent of our lives, is to glorify God, producing fruit. You know, when I read that John 15, 5 passage earlier about the vine, I only read a part of it. I want to read the whole verse now. It says, I'm the vine, you are the branches. Again, this is Jesus speaking. He who abides in me and I in them will bear much fruit. For apart from me you can do nothing He who abides in me and I in them, you will bear much fruit. So what's the fruit that's being talked about in these passages? If we boil it down to this, what is the fruit that's being talked about in these passages? The fruit is lives that have been changed for Christ as a result of your good works initiated by the Spirit. i want to read that again. The fruit is lives that are changed as a result of your good works initiated by the Spirit. Change for Christ. You know, some people will say, I can't think of a single person that I've led to Christ. Some people will say that. I think it's a whisper of the enemy. Because everything that you've ever done from that gift, from that passion, from whatever it is inside you, everything that you've ever done that's impacted somebody that led them to the cross, you share in that fruit. You know, there's emphasis on stewardship and giving here, and there should be because it's something that is an integral part of our worship of God. You know what? One of the things, there were several things that impressed me about First Christian Church when we first visited here 21 years ago. But one of the things that impressed me as much as anything was there are a lot of churches that challenge their congregations to tithe, and they do it because it's biblical, you know. It's not something we're making up. It's something that, there's tithe. What's the translation of tithe? Let's look at the Greek. Let's look at the Hebrew. Let's look at the whatever. Tithe is a tenth. Tithe is a tenth. This church doesn't just preach Scripture. Ten cents of every dollar you put in the plate goes to ministry. This church tithes on its general offering. So if you've put a dollar in the plate here, guess what? The fruit of the food pantry, the fruit of loaves and fishes, the fruit of shut-in communion, the fruit of all of the ministries of this church You have had a part in. You have produced fruit because of the faithfulness using a gift that you have to reach out. It doesn't have to be there's some gifts of evangelism. And that is people that can communicate that message clearly in a way that people understand and respond. And that's just one of the gifts of the body. Bearing fruit. Three steps. Lining up with God's plan. Find what it is if you don't know that God created you for. You know what? One of the best ways to find that out if you don't know is to ask somebody close to you because they'll see the gift in you, something maybe you don't even recognize. Jesus said, come to me, all of you who are and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Then what did he say? Take my yoke upon you. And you go, wait a minute, you're talking about rest, and now you're talking about this big oxen yoke that you're going to put over my shoulder. And wait a minute, I don't get that. think about it. If you are lined up side by side with Christ, he can bear all of the weight of that yoke and you just follow along and you're going exactly where he wants you to go. Line up with his plan. You know, when it gets rough, when we get out in front of him and that yoke starts chafing on our shoulders or we're bearing part of it that we don't need to bear, or when we're lagging behind him and he's just trying to pull us along, right? Shine your light. Line up with God's purpose for your life, find whatever that is, and then use it. Just use it. And the third thing, bearing fruit, you know what? If we do the first two things, that's going to take care of itself. And ultimately, we will glorify our Father in heaven because our lives, when they're over, will have purpose. So what's in it for us Let's answer that question once and for all if we do the other things. Matthew 25, 34, judgment of the sheep and goats again. Then the king will say, come, you who are blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you. Prepared for you, each one of us. John 1, excuse me, James 1, 12, blessed is the one who perseveres under trial for once he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life which the Lord has promised to those who love him. What's in it for us, well done, good and faithful servant, the approval of our Father, an eternity to spend in his kingdom, the kingdom of heaven. And a crown, you know, Scripture says that we're going to receive a crown. It'll be a reward for everything meaningful that we ever did. And you know what Scripture also says we're going to do? We're not going to take that crown and build a glass case and put it on our mantle. It says we're going to fall on our knees and we're going to give it back to Jesus. We're going to place it in front of him because apart from him, we couldn't have done anything. Because of him, we can do all things. You know, we, 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 each of you, me, most importantly, God's Holy Spirit, we are on a mission. You want to come along? Seems like it's worth it to me. Let's pray. God, you're so good. We don't understand your love. Sometimes, Father, we don't understand your purposes. But your word is so clear, and I'm so grateful for the promises of it. And, Father, I'm thankful for each and every person sitting in this room right now because they are a unique creation of yours, and they are vital to what you are calling this church to be and to do. Father, help us take each step. Thy word is a light unto my feet. Father, all we need to see is what the next step is. Let us not get bogged down sometimes in all of the other stuff. Help us to be obedient and faithful to the next step. We know your plan is great. We know the needs of this community are great, but we also know that we serve a God that can meet each and every one of them to your glory and to the inclusion of dozens, hundreds, thousands, millions to your kingdom. Dear God, help us to be on that mission. In Christ's name, amen.